I, you know, I don't think that AI will replace people or jobs. I think AI will replace tasks or parts of jobs. And I think just like this is true of all technology. I, I think AI is not different than any other advanced technology that we've had. It's just what's currently the frontier. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor and an advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies and, as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI or maybe just ready for your next adventure, let's talk. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week, two days fun fact. Eliezer Yudkowsky, who is widely regarded as the founder of the anti-AGI, or artificial general intelligence movement, writes in Time Magazine that pausing AI developments isn't enough. We need to shut it all down. Eliezer has been a lightning rod for controversy in the past and is again in this article. He argues that nobody, including AI researchers, knows what will happen when AI develops superhuman intelligence. His thesis is that the obvious thing that will happen is that everyone on Earth will die. I'll let you ponder that one and digest the rest of his rant on your own. Like Jan LeCun, I believe if we're smart enough to create superhuman bots, we are also smart enough to prevent them from destroying humanity. And as always, we'll link to the full article in today's show notes. Now, shifting to this week's conversation, we've had interesting conversations about remote first work with uh, some real pioneers in the space, leaders like Jordan Husney, Parable CEO, and Darren Murph, who at the time was the global head of remote work at GitLab. Well, today's guest has been building a platform to make distributed teams productive since long before it was fashionable. Adam Nathan founded Almanac in January of 2019 to challenge incumbents like Microsoft Office and Google's G Suite. Since then, he and the team have enabled organizations like Cisco, Credit Karma, and ByteDance to collaborate and shared workspaces. Adam has raised more than $40 million to date across two rounds from a legendary group of investors that includes Floodgate, Tiger Global, and General Catalyst. Prior to Almanac, Adam did his undergrad at Duke and received his MBA from Harvard. He's also an active volunteer for the Salvation Army. And uh, without further ado, Adam, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having you share a bit more about your background and uh, why you got into this space. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be on. Uh, as you mentioned, Almanac is a wiki and workflow tool that makes distributed teams faster. And today we've saved remote teams over 1 million hours and wasted work each year with fewer meetings and faster responses and less overhead. Uh, and to answer your question, uh, I started the company not really to, to build a tool for distributed teams, but because in, in my own journey, I was spending a lot of time at work on things that didn't feel like work. For the eight years before Almanac, I was a product manager at companies like Apple and Lyft and Varo. And even though uh, 
the the job and my job description was was to spend my days building products people loved. Um, what I actually was doing is sitting in often back to back meetings, repetitiously trying to answer a nonstop avalanche of notifications on Slack and on email. Um, all the while, basically just trying to get simple answers to simple questions like, did my boss read the document I sent, and what did my team think of the idea, and did I get you know approvals to move forward on projects? Uh, and and my weeks often felt like pushing a ball through mud, uh, like a lot of a lot of activity but very little forward progress. And I had this contrast with the engineers I worked with who used a tool called GitHub, which is basically a, a platform for collaborating asynchronously on code. Uh, and unlike my days, uh, the engineers uh, on my team moved a lot faster, were much more productive and, and seemingly were happier at the same time. So I started wondering what was it about how engineers worked and collaborated uh, that was so much better, so much faster than how knowledge workers and business professionals did. And that led to Almanac. So many organizations have tried to get remote first work and they failed. Uh, you're probably seeing it more than just about anyone else from the ground floor. What do most companies get wrong? Why does it seem so easy and why can nobody seem to get it right? Yeah, well, you know, remote isn't a place. It's kind of in this dichotomy that's been set up in the news media about remote versus office. I think it's basically a false choice because remote remote isn't a place. It's an absence of one. Um, and uh, when you don't have an office, you lose uh, all the kind of uh, theater-based nature of how work um, ha has come to be. You uh, and, and I think remote exposes how teams really work. Uh, and you know, some teams that were already well managed before are able to go faster because uh, they don't have all the overhead of the office. But a lot of teams, I think, saw just how dysfunctional uh, they really were. And I think managers and leaders uh, in those settings had two choices: one. They could uh, ignore it and try and cover it up and just say, let's go back to the office, or they could work to make it better. And so I think it's not that remote is worse than the office. It's just that teams in an office before <laughs> weren't really working very well. And, and remote just showed them um, what, what, uh, what reality, what truth really was. And I think for teams that want to work well, whether in an office uh, or remotely, the single most important thing that they can do is to add structure to how they work. Uh, structure can come in the form of templates, making roles clear around who does what in a process, um, laying out the steps of a process, including where decisions are. A lot of this is just like basic business management, um, but it's it's startlingly absent for most teams. I think, especially in tech, uh, maybe brought on by Google, there's this kind of vibe of like, let's just get smart people in a room and let's just do stuff together. And uh, maybe we'll find a breakthrough technology. And I think that works every once in a while, but I think uh, the best way to achieve results quickly is to add in structure. There's a saying in the Marines, uh, slow means smooth, smooth means fast. And I think what that often refers to is the idea that if you know what you're doing, <laughs> you will end up achieving that result uh, much better than if you just try and wing it. Uh, and so I think a second part to uh, what makes teams move faster is transparency. Um, people need to know where things are, what their role is, um, what the status is of, of, of what other people are doing on the team. Um, and I think when there is transparency in how teams work and collaborate, people can move faster with fewer messages and fewer meetings. So I've got to challenge you a little bit on that. Um, in kind of like the popular zeitgeist, it feels like meet has become a four-letter word. And you get these high-profile examples of like Shopify adding a little G suite integration that quantifies the costs of a meeting based on your salaries and time in the meeting and that sort of thing. And so 
I feel like a lot of executives are all riled up about, you know, the future meetings is no meetings. And, you know, without editorializing too much, I'd love to get your feedback on, is that the right extreme? Or like, where do we land eventually on what it means to meet? Yeah, well, I think when people say they hate meetings, I think what they're really saying is they hate bad meetings. (laughs) You know, meetings are expensive. Um, and I think they're often overused. And so I think the idea of Shopify adding a calculator is a great idea to help people consider, do we really need to meet right now? Uh, and if we do need to meet, how do we get the most out of our time? I think meetings are often really essential for complex topics that don't have easy yes or no answers. Uh, I think conversely, I think you don't need meetings for things that can be done asynchronously, like, do you approve this document or have you read this? Or um, did you understand this, this update? A lot of those things can be done without meetings. Uh, and I think Shopify is trying to reduce um, the amount of wasted time <laughs> on things that can be done much faster in a document. Um, but I think if you do need to have a meeting, the trick is to plan them intentionally. Uh, so obvious things like having a goal to the meeting, uh, knowing what you're trying to decide in the meeting, bringing an agenda to the meeting, uh, and then documenting what happens because often not everybody can be in the meeting. Uh, even if you are, you may be distracted or forget. And so documenting what happens enables people in the future to get the same value out of the meeting as those who are participating uh, and then move a lot faster. And so, you know, we've we've all been in <laughs> lots of meetings that uh, were just poorly planned and chaotic and un- unintentional. And so even things like brainstorming, I think people bring up things like, yeah, creative, creative tasks like brainstorming as like, oh, we need to meet all the time. And uh, I've been in some terrible in-person brainstorms uh, that where it wasn't clear what we were solving, you know, the loudest voice dominated the room. Uh, we left without any decisions or next steps. Um, and so even in times when you need to meet in person, um, bringing that intentionality, that structure and that transparency to a meeting can make it worth your while. We talk a lot, a lot on this podcast about a not too distant future where your colleague is a bot and anything that's kind of routine is being done by a machine, routine or predictable. But anything that requires human judgment, rational thinking, empathy, uh, is better left to humans. What do you yeah. think about a time when ad hoc teams are, are composed both of humans and machines? What does that mean for meeting culture? That's a great question. Well, I, you know, I don't think that AI will replace people or jobs. I think AI will replace tasks or parts of jobs. And I think just like this is true of all technology. I, I think AI is not different than any other advanced technology that we've had. It's just what's currently the frontier. And I think where we're starting with AI is, you know, replacing tasks that are uh, repetitive um, and solvable by a computer or by code, uh, not the kind of yeah, empathetic, creative collaboration that I think humans are best at. And I think we will remain best at for a very long time. And so I think there's a difference in my mind between collaboration and productivity. I think AI will make us more productive, will make us faster uh, because it will remove or speed up steps that um, shouldn't take the amount of time they do today for humans to do. Uh, but what I think will remain or become even more important is, is that uh, type of creative collaboration that I think only humans can do together. And so I think it will accentuate the best of both worlds where we will have more time to do the kind of work that only we're able to do as humans but we'll also be able, able to move faster on, on everything we have to do together. Trust is such a foundational component of relationships and certainly healthy organizational cultures. And I'd argue that one of the things that meetings are really good at 
is using call it small talk you know it, it's the it is the the one to two minutes of banter at the beginning or the end of a meeting where you get to know your colleagues and i'd also argue that that's one of the things that's an innate part of a human condition is that bots have no need for small talk and they don't trust each other and they're not sentient so when we talk about you know stripping away unnecessary meetings and potentially you know outsourcing certain tasks to bots do we risk losing the humanness of of organizations and that trusted relationship we have with with humans if we go too far in in, in the other direction yeah well i think i'd argue that creating connection and relationships that form the foundation of trust and respect between people that is an essential reason to meet uh, or have in-person time whether it's on zoom or or if you're physically co-located so i even in a world with fewer meetings i'd argue that uh you still need a, to meet as a team <laughs> to get to know each other uh and form those relationships you're talking about so um, i don't think that should ever be you know sacrificed <laughs> to speed or technology uh at almanac we start all of our in-person meetings with a kickoff question um we i think have a list of like 2000 of them at this point, uh, everything from like, what's your favorite color to what did you want to be when you were growing up to what's your perfect Saturday? And so questions that have nothing to do with work. And that's just to yeah help us realize that we are all humans <laughs> and uh, full real people. And we're, we're more than just our jobs or whatever the purpose of that meeting is or whatever we need from each other. And I think that's essential to building uh, a culture of connection and trust. Uh, and too often, I think they get sacrificed or forgotten about uh, when teams go remote or um, or become more distributed. I, I think a lot of companies are bad at it too, to be honest, in person. So again, I don't think that this is just a function of like where your team is located. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that will continue to be an important, even in a world with bots. You know, I, I there's a lot of companies that have named their like AI products after humans. And I think that's a little bit of a mistake because I don't think, you know, AI, 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 Technology is a sentiment, sentient creature, just like Google Maps isn't. And I think what AI is, again, I think it's just frontier technology. And I think it's um, something that it's a tool that we can harness to be better and faster uh, at the things we have to do. But it's not like a new member of the team. <laughs> uh, it's just a better tool. You started the company in 2019. I don't think you were uh, so prescient as to realize a couple of years later what would happen in the field of AI and generative AI and just how the world would wake up to the potential risks and also opportunities. Um, talk me through even over the last 12 months, how has AI, maybe generative AI specifically, changed Adam, changed Almanac, your product roadmap, you know, your, your, your customers' engagement with the product? Just curious from one entrepreneur to another, how has it changed the organization? Yeah, well, you know, I've always thought about AI as an accelerant onto great products. If you see even today, the companies that are so far, I think, getting the most uh, business value out of AI are either platforms with existing distribution, like Microsoft or Google, or even Notion. I don't think, I think it remains to be seen, but uh, there are fewer examples so far of companies that have built great businesses just off of AI itself. And I think that's because you know, to date, a lot of companies leverage AI through these open source models. And so it's relatively easy to wrap your product in AI. Um, but the hard part is actually the, the product underneath. In, in other words, if you want to build an AI document editor, 
Um, the hard part is the document editor. <laughs> it's the real-time collaboration. It's all the editorial elements. It's about security and permissions and document storage and performance. Um, that's the part of uh, most products that takes years to build. And so, uh, you know, wrapping that product with AI makes the product faster and better and more magical. And I think we've seen many cases of that so far, but um, having a strong product foundation and great distribution uh, is still essential to building a, a big business. And so um, that's that's generally how I look at this technology. It's just, uh, it's something that can make your, your growth faster and your product better. But um, I don't think there's been as many examples so far of companies uh, thriving into <laughs> a growth stage status just on AI itself. I think a couple of amazing things that AI have done for us at Almanac, maybe three things. One is it's taken what today is a multiplayer product and turned it into a single player one. So uh, Almanac is a um, collaboration platform and to really get the most value out of some of our best features around version control or um, approvals or tasks or comments, you need to bring all your team onto Almanac, you need to bring all your document, all your docs onto Almanac and really be using it every day. And of course, we have you know hundreds of companies that <laughs> that use it that way, but it's it's a pretty long funnel for us. It requires a lot of time and often investment on the company's part. With AI, uh, now you can use Almanac and all of our best features without having the rest of your team there. So now AI and Almanac can redline your document for you. It can mark it up with comments on your style or your syntax or your tone. It can prepare your document for export to a different tool. All things that required humans or the rest of your team to do before, and so. It enables people to get a lot more value out of Almanac a lot faster, often in their first session. I also think it improves basically how good the product is on things like comments or red lines. It's not just uh, you know your boss's best idea. <laughs> um, now Almanac can pull from uh, basically the entire world of <laughs> edits and texts on the internet to um, revise your document for you and get it into the best shape possible. Um, and I think the third thing from a business perspective is it's reshaped the landscape. Uh, you know, before we were competing against really entrenched incumbents like Google Docs or Microsoft Word, even products that are maybe a decade ahead of us in the starter space like Notion or Coda. Uh, and it, it feels like a snow has fallen over the landscape where now many companies have an opportunity to build a standard deviation better product than the alternatives um, even faster than the incumbents. And so I think it's scrambling the landscape and lots of people are looking for the very best tools uh, basically around the same jobs to be done that have existed for, you know, 30 years or 300 years, uh, but with, you know, a very new set of challengers to, um, to, to add some alternatives for consumers. I like how you describe the added value of AI from the perspective of a product manager. I look at like what Microsoft just announced to add $30 per month, 30 to 40% increase for a feature. A very powerful feature, but a feature whose utility is yet unknown. Uh, when you think about the, you know, if you have to quantify the value of these new features for your customers at Almanac, it, is the Microsoft, can we get away with charging 30 to 40% more for a feature? Or is, is there something I'm missing about how we're going to manage to quantify the value and the market will accept that increase? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that the prices you see are a reflection of the customer value they create. I think they're a reflection of the cost of producing <laughs> the uh, the AI feature. Uh, you know, models like Open so uh, like like OpenAI are actually very expensive. You know, several cents per word. And so I think the cost that they're that companies like Microsoft are charging to customers is a reflection of just like breaking even <laughs> on the technology. And I think over time. Uh, the cost of these LLMs will go down. 
Um, but right now they take a tremendous amount of computing power, tremendous amount of energy uh, to produce even basic uh, things like autocomplete or document generation. And so um, I think the pricing you see is a reflection of, of the tremendous cost of delivering AI to consumers. I agree with you. I, I don't yet know um, the, the total value that they'll create. And I, I don't think we've seen pricing yet that's driven by uh, customer value instead of uh, the cost of AI. I, I think there's a world where um, AI-based platforms and products um, deliver way more than $30 or $40 <laughs> of value per month um, if they're making uh, far more accurate, uh, far higher quality documents in this case than what you could do on your own or just with your team. Um, I think we've started to see some good examples of that in the legal space where uh, you know AI models that are probing from a, a pretty narrow and deep niche of documents can produce um, far higher quality legal docs than you know a team of, of lawyers ever could and they could it can be produced faster and cheaper uh, than for example paying a, a a recent graduate from Harvard law to redline your document and so I think there's examples in those cases where uh, consumer value will be way way greater than uh, what these tools can do today but I think the pricing we're seeing right now is like early adopter pricing based on uh, what it costs to just serve the feature up to people. So with traditional software, if the software makes mistakes, we call it a bug. And if the software contains enough bugs in it, we don't pay for it. Um, this is a very different situation where AI-first software routinely makes mistakes. We don't call them bugs. We give it this cute term. We say it hallucinated. That's just a bug in a previous life. It did something that it shouldn't have done. Who is responsible and how do we think about, you know, the quality of software changing, given that we're celebrating the fact that these new capabilities that we're so excited about introduce, let's call them what they are, bugs into software that otherwise, you know, behaved in a predictable way? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I think the way I think about AI today for most use cases is as a fuzzy first draft, uh, you know, big global LLMs are not pulling from specific deep data sources. They're just scouring the internet essentially uh, to try and probabilistically come up with an answer to your question. Uh, and so for most use cases, I think almost all, as far as uh, the products I can see on the market, um, you know, AI is not producing or even trying to produce a perfect answer that's specific to your question <laughs> or your need. It's just giving you something to work off of uh, as a starting point. And I think that's why, you know, the, the best use cases we've seen so far are really around document generation or image generation, generation being the key word there in that it's a place to start and then refine further on your own. And so I, I honestly think, and maybe this is uh, a little spicy that if anyone's just taking the output from AI and saying, oh, this is perfect and moving on with their lives, they're probably using the technology wrong. I don't think that's what it's designed for. I don't think that's what it can do. Um, I hope, uh, and I think it'd be cool to get to some use cases in the coming years where AI does produce a really precisely good answer. Um, I think that will come um, around uh, much narrower use cases with much deeper sets of data uh, where the AI can get to something like, you know, 98, 99% quality. <laughs> but um, I don't think that's what, uh, that, that's not how the technology is designed today. That's not um, how tools are built. And so uh, I think if you're using AI, thinking that it's going to get you something that's you know, bug free to use your term, um, you're going with the wrong expectation. I thought that collaboration software 
was pretty mature, maybe naively. And then we've had a series of guests, including this conversation and learning more about Almanac that made me realize that some of what I thought was pretty mature, whether it's, you know, office and collaboration capabilities or G Suite, or even, you know, using Slack as kind of the, the backbone for collaboration, um, isn't really solving the collaboration problem. Talk us through your approach to Almanac and why you were bold enough, you know, in 2019, right, like a decade after a bunch of other collaboration suites were really successful, like where you saw a gap in the market. Yeah, well, I think the fun thing about collaboration and productivity is that there, uh, you know, is no frontier or there, there's no endpoint. There's there's uh, there's always more to optimize. Um, collaboration is basically just a behavior around how we work together. And I think like any other kinds of behaviors like diet or exercise, nutrition, you know, there's there's always more you can do. <laughs> and uh, I think people think that they can always be more organized, always be moving faster, always producing better results or um, becoming more creative. Uh, I think it's just um, the, the fundamental dynamic of boundless human potential. And so I, I think there's there's always more opportunity in the market. And I think the question is, you know, can you find um, a step change um, in collaboration or productivity around um, the way the product is designed or features in it that kind of elevate uh, what we can all do together? And I think there's been, if you look over time at um, kind of the most successful products in collaboration, they all stand on each other's shoulders. Uh, Microsoft Word basically took a piece of physical paper and put it on a personal computer. Google Docs took that piece of digital paper and put it on the internet. And then we all realized we could work together at the same time on it. Uh, Notion, for example, recently, I think combined the idea of a document and a database together. I think what um, we focused on at Almanac is bringing collaboration next to where you're doing the work. So rather than using other tools like Slack or Zoom or email um, to get feedback or make decisions or seek approvals, all that in Almanac happens next to the document. Um, and today, because uh, collaboration is separate from productivity, where you're doing the initial work is different from where you're discussing it or deciding on it. Information gets split up between tools and it requires a lot of manual coordination uh, to manage it. And, and that takes a lot of people's time. And you know that's not even something that AI can solve. That's just fundamentally about how we organize ourselves and how we work together and how the tool is designed. And that's what makes GitHub so successful for engineers and what enables them to work a lot faster. And so I think our contribution uh, to the space is really about bringing where you collaborate on work next to where you've created it in the first place. Uh, and you know, I, I don't think it'll stop with us, obviously. I think people will take our ideas and build on them. Uh, and I think that's just the magic of technology. And, and, and uh, I think that the nature of our industry is to admire and accept other people's ideas and, uh, and then build on top of them. And so well, of course, we're all competitive with each other. I think there's a natural spirit of cooperation uh, that's that's really special um, and enables us to do things that individually or even as companies we couldn't do on our own. I've got to get you off the hot seat. We're bad out of time here, but uh, I want to ask you one last question. So you started the company in 2019, shared your background, uh, first time CEO. I know personally how the journey can't help but change you as a human. I'd love to know about your your personal journey as an entrepreneur. What what has it taught you about yourself? I think that I've had I have a lot more grit and persistence than I thought I did. Uh, starting a company is it's a ten year commitment at least if you're successful, uh, and it the more successful you are, the harder it gets. And so I, I think about this often as 
like a, you know, hundred mile race or like trying to climb Mount Everest where, you know, you, you might, you're on a steep part and you think you can see the, um, the ledge up above. And, and once you get there, then you realize just how much bigger the mountain is, how much more you have to climb. Uh, and in my four years at Almanac, uh, we've had a bunch of really great successes. We've also had a bunch of big failures. Uh, some of my greatest fears around starting a business have come true. And yet, uh, I'm still alive and we're still going. And, um, and I think the, the thread between it all is just to, um, to never stop moving and keep, keep putting one foot in front of the other, even when you think you can't, because, um, you can, if you're, if you're alive and you're breathing and, and I think the motivation to, to keep pushing forward, even when it's really hard is what separates successful founders from people who don't make it. And, uh, so I think it all comes down to grit and persistence, just, um, moving forward, even when you think you can't, <laughs> even when it's really difficult. And, uh, I think that's why the almanac is where it is today. Why, why I'm here is because I just didn't stop. Um, and that's the advice I'd give to any founder out there, especially new ones that it's not about how good the initial idea is or how much money you have or who your team is. It's really about, I think your personal determination to, um, to keep moving forward. If you, if you want to see it through. I love that analogy that you think you reached a peak and it's really a ledge and you look over the ledge. I think the test of an entrepreneur is how do you feel when that happens? Do you feel exasperated because you thought it was the peak or do you feel exhilarated because you get to keep climbing? Yeah. What has been in your case? Have you, you said, you know, you, you found a level of resiliency. Maybe you didn't think you had, has that been the case for you? Definitely. I think the scariest points have been, uh, I call it losing the scent uh, and to use the mountain metaphor again, and has felt there's been, there have been points in the business where it feels like I'm like wandering, you know, in a foggy forest and I don't know which way to turn. It's even, it's, it's often feels that way. I think in the early days, pre-product market fit, when maybe you're just searching for an idea or trying to validate it with customers, it's a lot scarier when you have investors and a team who are looking to you for direction and you don't know where to go. Uh, that's, that, that has been, those have been some of the, uh, darkest days for me at Almanac because, uh, cause I don't have the confidence myself. Um, and so figuring out how to find the scent again, I think is another true skill of an entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, I think in the, for most early stage companies, the fuel of the company is momentum. It's, uh, people feeling motivated and inspired and feeling like, oh yes, we are going to make it to the top of the mountain. And so, and I think those companies die when people get tired and when they want to go do something that's new and exciting and gives them fresh energy. And so I think when you lose the scent, the trick is finding it again or finding a direction before everybody gets too tired and burnt out. Uh, and so I think those moments have been when I felt, I don't even know if exasperated is the right word, but just scared <laughs> uh, and and tired and not knowing if we're going to make it. Um, almost always, I think, uh, when we reach, uh, you know, if you're climbing up a, a, a hill, just having a path, any path, I think is better than having no path because you can then validate it or falsify it and then make the right turn. And I think excellence often comes from iteration and just being able to get a lot of ideas out there as fast as possible and then get feedback on them from whoever the critical stakeholder is on the other side, often it's, uh, customers <laughs> and users, but, um, getting, getting any, any data or feedback is useful. And I think I always feel exhilarated or energized when I'm getting feedback, whether it's positive or negative, you know, whether it 
um, validates or falsifies my initial hypothesis because it helps me understand um, and, and feel confident in where we're, where we're going. And um, I think it's, this is so cheesy, but it is about the journey. It's about making, have, making that forward progress that uh, is really at the heart of, I think, why people start companies and why they do things. It's just to see, to see if you can. And um, so I never assume that any particular ledge or peak is the final one, but I, I think I get a lot of value and satisfaction every day about just feeling like we're, we're pushing the needle and, and making progress. And I think that's true of not just founders. I think it's true of anyone who works. I think satisfaction comes from ending your week, feeling like you got stuff done <laughs> and that you move the needle on whatever it is that's important to you. Excellence comes from iteration. I like that. And I, I like you described the pursuit. It's raw. It's very human. We're all humans first. And uh, sometimes because you know that your team is looking to you to, to be not vulnerable and, you know, to be the one who doesn't lose the scent, it can feel like a lot of responsibility and it can feel very lonely at times, but um, I think give the, the right attitude about, you know, feeling like it, it is part of the journey and it's the ability to celebrate the journey that, uh, that separates the best entrepreneurs. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that anyone has hiked or climbed mountains before, I think the, the peak is often almost a deflating experience. Like, is that it? Is that, and you know, even when I've, I've climbed very big mountains, like I don't spend a lot of time on the peak. You look around, you take a couple of photos, you eat a snack bar and then you start going down again. And I think I've read that uh, founders that have exited often feel a sense of, I think, purposelessness or ennui when they sell their company because they don't have that, that motivating force anymore to just keep going. And I think that's true for a lot of people who are working towards a goal or something really big. Uh, it's, it's not really about the destination. <laughs> Uh, or the triumph at the end. It's about seeing what seeing what we can do individually and as a team. Um, and I think that's what makes technology so exciting as an industry, or even just using it, because seeing what other seeing what you can create, seeing what other people have created, I think expands our sense of what's possible for ourselves. And you know, to your point, technology is especially with AI. It's not about the technology; it's about what we as humans can do with it. Adam, we've gone way off script and way over time, but uh, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. Before I can let you go, where can the audience learn more about you and the work of Almanac? Yeah. So if you're interested in a better way to work, check us out at almanac.io. And I'm on Twitter or whatever it's called these days and LinkedIn. Uh, I think my DMs are open, so we'd love to hear from you. Brilliant. Adam, thanks for hanging out. I really enjoyed this one. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Well, gosh, that's a uh, that's a wrap for this week on AI and the future of work. Of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest.